Now, if you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to take that as our gift to you and uh, use the Bible at home, read it, treasure it as we treasure it, come back with it uh, on Sundays with us as we hear God's Word preached that you might study it and understand it and grow uh, in the knowledge of God. And so please take that uh, as a gift from the ARC family uh, to you and to your family. Now, the other thing that I want to do before we turn to the sermon itself is we have been memorizing the Bible together. Uh, We've been memorizing Colossians as we've been preaching through it. And this morning, we're up to Colossians 2, verses 16 to 19. So do I have somebody that wants to recite that for us this morning? Encourage us. All right, Miss Deb. Y'all welcome. Encourage Miss Deb. All right. Amen. 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 (laughs) Amen. 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 Praise God. Isn't it, isn't it encouraging to see somebody else struggle a little bit? And then, and then to see them triumph? Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. I like the wisdom that Deb exhibited there too. She waited till we had like four verses. And we'll do that. We'll do that, right? We'll do that. See, that's, that's wisdom. I ain't doing those 18 verses. In the, you know. Praise the Lord. Anybody else want to give it a crack? Come on now, Deb set a great example for us. Anybody else want to give us credit? All right, come on, Miss Arlette. Yeah, encourage Arlette. Amen, amen. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Amen. Man, it's up in this joint like a Bible translation committee, man. You get the, the ESV, what is that? The, the NLT? How about that? Amen. Praise God. So hiding God's word in our hearts. Let me pray for us and we'll turn to the sermon. Yes, that's right, little man. Yeah, yeah, let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us in your word. We live by your word, by every word that comes from your mouth. And when we don't have it, we, we starve. We, we famish ourselves. And when we have it, we, in it we have life, Lord. So give us life this morning by your word. Let us be nourished and knit together just as we heard recited. And let us have that growth that comes from you. Oh Lord, nourish us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Religious freedom. That's an idea with a long history in the world. It's a tenuous idea. Some lands centuries ago passed laws, ancient laws that permitted people to practice their own religious theological beliefs and people to worship in accord with their own conscience. And so we have had in the history of the world uh, empires committed to religious freedom and freedom of worship. And we've had in the history of the world empires committed to the opposite, where there have been state religions and fundamentalist approaches to those religions there have often been the oppression and the suppression of people who believed differently and worshipped differently. I am among those, as most Christians have been historically, who believe that the right to worship God according to one's own theological beliefs and one's own worship practices is a fundamental human right. Since God made us, very little could be more fundamental than that we be free to worship him. We often think of the United States as a place of religious freedom. And indeed, in our Constitution, we have enshrined uh, clauses that forbid the government to create a state religion and also practices or, 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 or protects the free exercise of religion. And despite that, we're not perfect in our practice of it either. 
Christians in this country, big up for the Baptists now, were at the sort of forefront of crafting the practice of religious freedom in this country. Before we were a country and we were colonies, most of our colonies actually had state religions. It was the founding of Rhode Island as a Baptist colony that was in some ways at the forefront of forging the freedom of religion and the freedom of worship in this country. Baptists were fleeing persecution in places like Massachusetts in order to found a colony where they could worship God according to how they understood the word. But that's an interesting little bit of history, isn't it? Because there what you have is Christian against Christian persecution. There what you have is Christians not allowing other Christians the freedom of worship and religion. It reminds us that this thing that we hold dear and that we ought to protect in laws in our country and so on, it reminds us that this very ideal sometimes is in danger in our very own hands. And little can be more suffocating, damaging, and discouraging than having our freedoms taken away when it comes to worshiping God. Our text this morning is all about religious freedom, all about the freedom of worship. Not with regard to Baptists versus, say, uh, Catholics or some such thing, but it's all about how we live together as a Christian family, as one body, in a way that promotes freedom and the joyful worship of God and the growth that comes from our union with Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our main point. We should seek to grow by union with Christ, not by religious ritual. We should seek to grow by or through our union with Christ and not by religious ritual. And we're going to divide Colossians 2 verses 16 to 19 into two equal halves that correspond to the two commands that God gives us in his word. And if you're taking notes, here's the two points to our sermon. Religious freedom requires we, number one, let no one pass judgment on us. Let no one pass judgment on us, verses 16 to 17. That'll require some explaining. Number two, that we let no one disqualify us or condemn us. Let no one disqualify us. Verses 18 and 19. Look with me. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The first thing we want to say is let no one pass judgment on you. If you would be free, 
and grow in accord with God and union with Christ, let no one pass judgment on you. That's where our text starts. Now, the first word in our text is therefore. And you know, when you're reading your Bibles and you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask what? What's it there for? Exactly. Exactly. Paul's been making an argument in Colossians chapter 2. It began in verses 1 to 5 where he said, first of all, that Jesus Christ is our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Paul says, God has made Christ to be wisdom for us. That is our, our holiness, our sanctification, our redemption. And over and against all the other philosophies of the world, our philosophy is Christ. He is our wisdom from God. And since Christ is our wisdom, verses 6 to 7, Paul says, now therefore walk in him. Rooted and built up in the faith, established in him. We are to walk in Christ if we have received him as Lord. Then he comes to Colossians 2 verse 8 and he gives us the first warning there. He tells us there, let's see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and vain deceit. According to what? Human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So he says, now you're free in Christ. You're united to Christ. Christ is your your wisdom. So walk in that wisdom. Don't let people take you hostage. And and he tells us why in verses 9 to 15. It's because we have been filled with Christ. Christ is our fullness. And we have been joined together with Christ. We thought about all those references to in him and with him. The very life of Christ courses through the life of the Christian. And the Christian's life, Colossians 3, uh, around verse 2, is, is hid with Christ in God. We are united with Christ. That's our new spiritual reality. Our lives have been joined and we are now inseparable. And that's why we're free from legalistic religion. Christ, who is our life, has provided our righteousness to God and has atoned for our sin in his cross before God and has been resurrected for our justification. And all that's happened to Christ is now, as it were, happened to us vicariously through faith in our union with him. And that brings us down to verse 16, where Paul says, therefore, again, given all of that, your union with Christ, your victory over your enemies through Christ, Given all of that, that, that Christ is your fullness and your wisdom, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. You see the problem there in verse 16? There are apparently some people in Colossae who, well, they got opinions. <laughs> they got judgments. And, and they are basing their judgments, as verse 16 says, on matters or questions of food and drink, on festivals and new moons, and Sabbaths. In other words, they've got dietary laws, and they've got ritual laws. Now, I'll tell you right now, as a pastor, those people with dietary laws get on my nerves, right? <laughs> get off me. Get off me. I let nobody judge me in terms of what I eat. Um. <laughs> now, the word judge can be used positively or negatively. This same word is used both ways throughout the Scripture, but obviously in the context, Paul is using it negatively here. And it's a word that's in parallel with that verb in, in verse 8, let no one take you captive, and parallel with that verb in verse 18, disqualify. So it's the kind of judging that is actually enslaving and has the sort of unmitigated gall to pronounce whether or not you are a Christian. It's more than just criticizing, it's a kind of judgmentalism. These are people who are saying, follow our rules and rituals or you ain't a Christian. Anybody know them? 
They judge their fellow believers on the, on the basis of, again, these dietary laws and these ritual laws. We, we find those three words, festivals, new moons, and, and Sabbaths in the Old Testament occurring together just like that as a, as a kind of triumvirate. And that idea of Sabbath is a distinctively Jewish idea. And so it, it is likely the case that there's some kind of Jewish uh, syncretism in the background here. There's some kind of legalism in the background here. And, and, and that may be blended together with other kind of pagan rituals around dietary rules and things of that sort. And so those things are tending to enslave people in Colossae. And what they're saying in effect is Jesus is not enough. You need to eat a certain way and you need to go to certain religious days plus Jesus. And then you can be okay. That's the full life, right? Notice the Bible's prescription. The Bible's command here is quite clear. Let no one pass judgment on you in these matters. Now, whenever you see the word, again, therefore, you're asking, what's it there for? And Paul is referring us back to our union with Christ. And, and he's saying, now, listen now, see how, free, how, how complete your freedom is in Christ. When he says no one there, that's the singular. And he could have in mind a particular teacher uh, in the Colossae church, or he could just be saying as a, as a principle, nobody at all. Don't let anybody judge you in this matter. Again, I read the Bible. I sometimes just hear my mama and, you know, she used to say to me, boy, don't you let nobody put their hands on you. (laughs) Nobody at all, right? And Paul is just talking like my mama right here. Don't let nobody judge you in these matters. Not a single Christian has the right to judge other Christians in these matters, these secondary matters. But let's, let's be clear about what kind of matters Paul is addressing here in verse 6. Rules about food and drink and the requirement to worship on certain days are not themselves moral issues. They are not matters of sin or holiness, of morality or immorality. Now, no, no doubt the false teachers were acting like they were. Right? That's how they get their force, right? And they treat these things as if this is a, a commandment from God and a, and a matter of holiness or sin and, and then bind the person with those commandments. But the Bible does not anywhere suggest that these sort of religious rituals, which Paul calls man-made elsewhere in Colossians, are the basis for our acceptance with God. But at the same time, the Bible doesn't anywhere suggest that Christians are free to sin. That's a different category. So if you let your eyes go over to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that's what the apostle says there. He is still referring to our union with Christ. And in verses 1 to 4, he said, now, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and and we are to set our mind on things above, not things on the earth. And when Christ, verse 4, who is our life, appears, then we shall appear with him also in glory. Right? So he's focused us on heaven. And then he says in in verse 5, therefore, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Then he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Okay, that's a different category. That's the category of morality and holiness and sanctification. That's the category of sin. In those matters, we do judge righteous judgment. We do carefully speak with each other about whether or not our lives are right or wrong in those kinds of matters. But again, Paul is not talking 
about that. He's talking about, uh, to give you the fancy theological word, uh, matters that are adiaphora. They are matters indifferent. Right? They're indifferent to your salvation. They're morally neutral. In those matters, the Christian must protect himself or herself from being enslaved again. I like the way Leon Morris put it when he comments on this. He says, do not let anyone impose on you a program of spiritual development that does not have Christ as its heart. That's what Paul is after there. And in verse 17, he gives us the reason why. He says, listen, don't let anyone judge you in these things, verse 17, because these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know what a shadow is. A shadow is a a dark area that's caused when a solid object stands in front of the light, right? So our our body casts a shadow uh, when, when the light passes over us. And, and that word substance there is the Greek word soma. It literally can be translated body. So Paul is playing with that image of, of shadow and body, right? And see what he says there. The light of God's salvation shines on Jesus, and Jesus casts a long religious shadow, right? And the world oftentimes tries to embrace the shadow rather than the substance, and Paul regards really all of the Old Testament laws and rules as shadow. And the reason why many people want to turn back to it is because there is a sense in which the shadow is connected to the body. It's not completely something different. This is why Paul uses that language, I think, in verse 8 about plausible arguments. These things sound right. It, it sounds right for someone to come to you and say, hey, listen, in the Old Testament, God said you must observe the Sabbath perpetually. And so if you're not observing the Sabbath, you're doing something wrong. And just on the face of it, you go, well, well, that is what the text says. But notice what they are missing. They're missing the substance, the reality. The reality is Christ. The body is Christ. The thing to be embraced is the body. It's, it's like going up and meeting Chris for the first time, and I see the, 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 the shadow casting off Chris' body. And rather than shake his hand, I try to shake the hand of the shadow. You ever tried to shake the hand of a shadow? Good luck with that. It's misty. It's, it's... Oh, but the body, the reality, the substance, that's what we have if we are Christians. That's what we have been united to if we are Christians, with, with Christ himself. The reality of the thing, not the picture of the thing, is ours. Once I heard someone use the illustration of the difference between the picture and the person by saying, imagine you went to the airport and you were going there to pick up someone that you hadn't seen in years and you had a, maybe they had emailed you or something. Or, uh, I guess they wouldn't email it. See, you see, I'm a dinosaur technologically. They might, what would they do? Sort of text it or Instagram or something? But they send you a, a recent picture, right? And you got the picture on your phone and you're standing at the airport and you're watching people come out of the airport and you're, you're looking for the person. And finally, the person comes out and, and you greet them and you look at the picture, you look at them, you check it off. And then you leave with the phone and not the person. That's what it is to meet Christ and turn back to the law. You've got this picture of him in the law, and now he's come, and he's in the flesh, and he's come to save us, and he says, here I am, and, and, and this is what the Pharisees do. They look at him, and they go, no, nah, we like the law. We like the picture. We'd rather turn back to the shadow. And so many Christians live in the shadowlands. This really is the spiritual equivalent of the sunken place. Where Christ, who is your body, is suppressed 
and the shadow of something else begins to dominate you. And Paul is warning against this. Listen, they don't understand the relationship between the old and the new. Notice in verse 17, they they are looking to the shadows of things that were to come. But now Christ, who is the fulfillment, has come. Most errors in in theology, most sort of um, uh, heresies in theologies, often are biblical theological errors. Errors wherein people don't know how the Bible fits together. Right? And so so our Seventh-day Adventist friends make a big deal out of keeping the Sabbath. Right? And it's like, yo, beloved, Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest, not that seventh day. That was prophesying to Jesus' coming. And on and on and on it goes again. And so Paul is saying, know how the Bible fits together. Know that it points to Christ. Receive the substance which is Christ and live in the freedom that Christ gives. Don't fall for that, that trick of folks who say, do this and you will grow. Don't do this and you will be holy. Those rules are not the body, but the shadow. Rules are like watching television commercials. Watch a television commercial and you see a product you like. Well, you don't start acting like you own the product once the the commercial goes off, do you? No, you, you turn off the TV, you go to the store, you buy the product, then you own the thing, then you have it, right? The commercial is not the thing, and the law is a commercial for Christ. It is not the thing. Christ is the thing. And those commercials could never make us holy with God. So Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow, same language, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, the law, it can never, excuse me, it can never by same sa- those sacrifices. Is that my page? It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law can't produce what Christ can. The substance is Christ. Their primary error is not knowing how the Bible fits together. The real body, the real fulfillment, the real way to live is through union with Christ. In him all the fullness of God dwelled bodily. And we have been filled in him. He has been circumcised and we have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. He died and we died with him. He rose and we rose with him by faith. He's seated at the right hand of the father and there we sit in him. All of our life is meant to be lived in that reality that we are united with our savior. Keep hold of Jesus himself and all he's done for you and stay out of the shadow lands. Let no one pass judgment on you in these indifferent matters. So how do we apply this? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. God wants to understand, you to understand very clearly that what he offers you in Christ, his son, is a relationship with him, not primarily a body of rules. It's popular for people to think of Christianity in terms of a set of rules and religious tradition. And there are elements of tradition and things of that sort which we find helpful and we don't despise. But that is not the main thing in the Christian faith. The main thing in the Christian faith is actually knowing God. So John 17, 3 defines eternal life this way. This is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It is your personal relational knowledge of God through his son, Jesus Christ, which makes you a Christian. 
And you are meant then, if you become a Christian, to live out that relationship to its full, to walk with Christ, to enjoy Christ, to commune with him, to speak with him, to be spoken to by him. That's what God offers you, a relationship with him. The one true and living God. Now, if that doesn't excite you, it's because your sin is blinding you. I don't say that to be personally affronting. It's just simply to say this. If I told you that I knew your favorite basketball player or movie star, right? I told you I'm coming to church next week with Denzel Washington or coming to church next week with, I'd never come with LeBron James, but if I were coming to church (laughs) next week with, you know, one of the Golden State Warriors, right? Many of you, many of you now, many of you be like, ooh, I'm sitting next to Pastor next week. I'm going to be close to Pastor next week. I will, I'm going to walk in the door with Pastor after the service because I, I want to meet that person. You'd be excited to meet that person, right? Because it's somebody that you admire their work or, you know, you just want to meet them. Now, there's not a living being on the planet who can compare to the living God. And if we are not excited to meet God, but we're excited to meet celebrities, something's wrong. And there's something that's wrong the Bible calls sin. You see, in our sin, we don't love God the way we're supposed to. In our sin, we love ourselves and we love other things, but we don't love God. And it's this relationship with God that fixes that, that that turns our hearts to him the way he deserves and the way in which we were made to love him. And that requires us confessing our sin, turning to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, putting our faith in him, and following him in this relationship in which we begin to get to know him for the rest of our lives and on to eternity. This is what it is to be saved, beloved, from the wrath of God that's coming upon the world. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. This is what God wants for you is a relationship with him. This is what we want for you. This is what Jesus has come into the world to accomplish, to bring you safely home to God. If you'd like to know more about that, talk with me after the service. Talk with your Christian friend who brought you this morning. We, we want you to know what it is to be loved by God. And that's a perfect love, beloved. It will not disappoint you. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know Jesus. But now if you're here and you're looking for a church home, let me apply this to you too. I, you may be between churches or you may be looking for your first church. Um, I think this has application for what you look for in a church. Look for, look for teachers and leaders who understand Christian freedom. Do not submit to leaders who would enslave and judge and disqualify you. That's authoritarianism. That is not Christian leadership. That's manipulation, not Christian love. Here's how Jesus says it. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 20, 25, and 26 that they are not to lord it over one another. Not to oppress and control each other in the faith. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He writes there, we do not lord it over your faith, but we work together with you for your joy. That's Christian leadership. Or how Peter says it as a pastor. He says, you're not to be domineering over the flock of those who are in your charge, but be examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 3. That's what you're looking for. Look for leaders who are examples, who are worthy to be followed, who do not domineer and lord it over the church, who do not manipulate the members and control in that way, but actually teach you how to live as free people. 
as free Christians in the joy of the Lord. So Christian, those of you who wish to be free, how do we apply this to our lives? Again, it seems to me that a significant number of Christians live in the shadowlands of religious rules. False teachers have placed them there. And well-meaning teachers, I think, who misuse the law have placed them there. How do we avoid it? Let me give you three things. First, we must discern the difference between someone pointing out sin in our lives and someone enslaving us with man-made rules. We've got to be able to tell the difference. And here's a simple way to start. Ask yourself, is the issue truly a matter of sin or morality? The question is, well, how would I know that? That's the second thing you've got to answer. Well, we know that because we should be able to turn to the Bible, put our finger on a text in context, and see there clearly said, thou shalt not or thou shalt. Right? It's the word of God that determines what is sin. It's the word of God that binds our conscience. It's through God's word that he tells us how he wishes us to live. And then thirdly, if it's sin, we confess, we repent, and we follow Jesus in faith. If it's not sin, but a matter of freedom, then we protect our freedom and we use it as the Bible instructs us to. That's another sermon. But making the distinction between sin and ritual is vital. Between sin and someone else's preference is vital to keeping the substance, which is Christ, and not being lost in the shadow. Second, Christian, we must be careful of our own tendency to make religious rules that keep us personally, or we can keep ourselves in the shadows, or using those rules to kind of try to put other people in the shadows. We have to ask ourselves, where am I tempted to create a custom or rule that is not about sin, and then to trust it as if it makes me holy? Where am I tempted to make a custom or rule which is not about sin, and then trust it as if it makes me holy? Where am I tempted to say, no Christian should, fill in the blank? You know, where am I tempted to say, well, I never would fill in the blank? And if the blank is not filled in with book, chapter, verse, where do we feel that temptation? Now, here's the thing, beloved. That might be a perfectly acceptable application of God's word for you. In which case, you should do it. You should obey your conscience and obey God's word. But simply because it's a preference or a matter of conscience for you, you can't now impose it on all the other Christians. Right? So, so if you never would go to Eastern Market on Saturday and eat French toast because it's too much calories and you think that's sin because this is the temple of God and you want to take care of God's temple, fine! I ain't going to send you an invitation to meet me for French toast. But there's some other folks in here going to click up with me, and we're going to go over there, get French toast, put a little powder on it. I'm just saying. And that ain't sin. And we ain't mad at you. And we don't care if you're mad at us. Because we free. That's, a, that's how that works. That's how that works. That's how that works. Right? <laughs> Thursday, that day. So, so we have to discern between sin and something else. 
And we have to be careful of our own tendencies to enslave ourselves or enslave others. We all have that somewhere, right? And then we have to continue our freedom by actually enjoying Jesus. See, the best way to avoid someone passing judgment on us is enjoying the fullness that we have in Christ. Let's say you're outside in the winter and it's freezing cold. You're near your own home. In fact, you can see through the window. And you look in the window and you see this beautiful warm fire in the fireplace in your home. And somebody walks by and sees you shivering in the cold. And they say to you, man, go in the house. Well, you can turn to them and say, well, I'm going to use my freedom to stay out here. But beloved, the, the glare of the fire will never warm you. The fact that you can see some fire at a distance will never give you zeal and passion and warmth in the things of Christ. If you really would enjoy your freedom, then you must go in and enjoy the fire. Go close to the fire, warm yourself by it, thaw out by it, and enjoy all that comes with the coziness of of being around the fireplace. So it is with Christ. We can't say I'm free from all these man-made religious rules and, and then kind of sit on our hands and never, never hug Christ. Never enjoy him, never read his word, never pray to him, never gather with his people and sing his praises. Well, beloved, the absence of Christ will never prove the presence of Christ. No, we want more of him, to delight in him, to know him, to treasure him. This union that we have with him, to experience it more and more. That's what you do to protect your freedom. You immerse yourself so deeply in Jesus and the enjoyment of Jesus that you are unbothered by people trying to turn you away from him. Delight in Christ. Give yourself to him. Make sure it's not sin. If it is, repent. Make sure it is Christ. If it is, enjoy. Which brings us to our second thing. Let no one disqualify us. Not only must we not allow anyone to judge us when it comes to religious rules or shadow issues, we must also not allow anyone to disqualify us. That term disqualify means to condemn as though the person is not saved. It's an interesting choice of words. Remember how Paul describes our salvation back in Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. Look back there. He writes there that we should be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what it means to be saved. God has qualified us based upon what his son has done for us in obeying his law and dying for us. And and he's brought us into this inheritance uh, with us, with all the rest of the saints. Now, here come along some people who wish to disqualify you, right? Who wish to overturn God's verdict in our lives. Again, beloved, we're always on dangerous grounds when we think we can finally determine who is and who is not saved. That ground is even shakier if the basis of our disqualification is not their immoral lifestyles, which we can hold up next to the Bible, but the basis of our disqualification are the things we make up. That's perilous ground. And that's what we see in verse 18. Look there with me. These people are insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his situous mind. That word translated asceticism literally is the word that's used in the Bible for humility. 
But in the context, it's a false humility. I like the way our sister's translation put it. I forgot how it was, but this sort of false show of religious piety. Right? These are folks who are outwardly showing all this kind of religiosity and, and being severe to their, to their bodies, as he would say later. They are, they are enacting all these strict rules as, as if that's what makes one holy and, and one righteous with God. And they are boasting in their rules and they're trying to bring other people into sort of servitude to their rules. That ascetic lifestyle, which is so contrary to joy and pleasure, which Christ intends in a holy way. So they are ascetics. And they're making that a requirement, which Jesus never did. Think of some holiness or fundamentalist churches and Christians, for example, that say a a woman, for example, cannot wear pants or wear makeup or wear jewelry. They misunderstand 1 Peter 3, turn that into a rule and bind all the women as if holiness is primarily a matter of how one dresses. Now, I think holiness impacts how one dresses, but it is not established by how one dresses. That's the perversion, right? That's the enslavement. It's a kind of legalism, asceticism. But these false teachers insist on that. And notice they insist on the worship of angels. Now, all we really need to say about this is that God does not share his glory with another. He forbids in the first commandment that we would worship anything but him. And they worship angels who themselves in the Bible refuse worship. So if you look at the book of Revelation, for example, and you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, uh, John gets a vision of Jesus and he falls down in the face of that vision and worships Jesus and Jesus accepts his worship. Then you go down to the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. He's finished all of the revelation and an angel appears to him and he falls down to worship the angel. The angel says, yo, bro, don't do that. You must not do that. Get up. And so these men, these teachers, these professing Christians would have us worship angels rather than God. Only a fallen angel like Satan would accept your worship. And all of this depends, notice, on detailed visions they claim to have. Couldn't help but think of Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Joseph Smith claims to have gotten his revelation from an angel named Moroni, who gave him a special pair of glasses with which to read this new book that this angel supposedly gave to him. And to this day, Mormons who claim to believe in Jesus find themselves in slavery to the worship of religious rules and and man-made tradition, superstition. That's what Paul says. All such teachings are puffed up without reason. I love that. Paul's like, you know, you, you fronting like you're humble. You got a whole lot of reason to be humble, right? You puffed up with, with no legitimate reason to be proud. You are full of hot air, right? You're puffed up without reason. Notice, by your sensuous minds. The word there for sensuous is fleshly. By your sinful mind. These people are proud and full of hot air. Their visions come from their pride and, and from their sinful thoughts. People are lost in sin, and they're leading others into their lostness. Notice the consequences. At least three consequences in this text. They've lost their heads. They've lost their heads. Puffed up by their own minds, they are not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. 
These leaders are just like the false teachers in Galatians. You may remember where Paul says of those false teachers in Galatians 5 verses 1 to 6, they have been cut off. They have been severed from Christ. Christ is of no, uh, no advantage to them. They have fallen away from grace. The same thing is being said here in, in such a short phrase of these teachers in Colossae. They are not joined to Christ. Christ is not their head. Here's the, here's the irony here. While they are disqualifying others as Christians, they themselves are not Christians. They themselves do not belong to Christ. They've lost their heads. They've also lost their bodies. Not only are they not attached to Christ, but notice there, they're not truly a part of the body of Christ. It's from the head that the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. They, they have no true connection with either the head or the body. They're infiltrators and imposters. A true Christian is joined to every other Christian as, as, as joints and ligaments are joined together in a single body. And here the body refers to the church. In Christ, we are connected to one another, beloved. We are joined together as ligaments and joints. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, God has designed the body in this way so that we supply to each other the grace, the nutrients, the things we need actually to grow together as a body. That, that's how it happens. This means, beloved, that lone ranger Christianity is not true Christianity at all. This means we cannot grow as God intends and designs for us to grow if we place ourselves outside of the body of Christ, outside of the church. We, we must be parts in the body to receive what we need in order to grow with the body. We are to be united to him, the head. That means we are to be united to each other. And the nourishment that comes down from the head comes down through us individually and severally and then we share it collectively. So this is why the Bible could say things like in 2 Corinthians 1, comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received from God. When you think of all the one another passages in the scripture, it's a remarkable thing. I love the definition from Robert Murray McShane of, of what a Christian is. He says a Christian is basically one who has the life of God in the soul of man. I just want to add something to that. To be a Christian is to have the life of God in the soul of man shared with other Christians. Amen. Right? That life flows to us and through us and to one another. And that's God's plan for nourishing us, for feeding us, for growing us. Is the brother or sister that you're looking at in the pew next to you or in front of you or behind you? When we gather as a church family, we're not fundamentally just individual Christians having our own private spiritual devotion. No, we are an organism. We are a body connected together, encouraging one another, building one another up, strengthening one another, that we all together grow up into the fullness of Christ. And beloved, honestly, biblically, there is no other way to grow. There is no other way to grow. They've lost their heads, they lost their bodies, and as a consequence, number three, they've lost their lives. That's the problem with not being connected to the head. You die. <laughs> All right, we, can, we can lose other body parts. You can lose an arm, you can lose a leg. You can, we've even figured out a way in modern medicine to, to not have an actual heart, to have a mechanical heart, and we can still live. But lose your head? We ain't figured out how to make a body live without a head. 
And I'm hoping Jesus comes back before they do, right? (laughs) Everything without a head dies, right? The opposite is also true. Anyone connected to the head, notice that last phrase in verse 19, grows with a growth that comes from God. That's the most beautiful part of this paragraph to me. When we're speaking of Christian growth, we're not speaking of self-help baptized in religious language. The source of true spiritual growth cannot be reduced to human effort and human wisdom. That's the whole argument of this chapter. Effort is involved, but not at the source. The source of growth is God. The best kind of growth comes from God. This image of the head and the body simply reflects, yet again, our union with Christ. He's talking about the same thing he's been talking about this entire chapter. We grow by remaining in Jesus. That's why Jesus says he's divine and we are the branches. And unless we abide in him, we cannot cannot produce any fruit. We must live in him and he in us. And the natural result of that is growth that comes from God. So Christian growth is fundamentally a matter of remaining connected to the head who is Christ. Well, what does that look like? There's a couple of applications to close. First of all, is this how you think of Christian growth? Or do you think of growing as a Christian as a matter of rolling up your sleeves and a little spiritual grit and pressing through? Making yourself something different. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for grit and determination and discipline. But growth isn't fundamentally produced by that is the point. I mean, are you tired and frustrated with the fits and starts of of growing as a Christian? Do you think your fatigue might be a symptom of trying to grow apart from union with Christ? Do you think your fatigue might be a symptom of trying to grow with no real meaningful fellowship with other Christians? Might your fatigue be connected to the powerlessness of religious rules made by men rather than the power of the living God and His Spirit? in you. So two applications that lead to growth without losing freedom. Number one, remain connected to the head, which is Christ. Number two, remain connected with the body, which is the church. And we can do both of those things through a couple of strategies. First strategy, practice the New Testament one another's. Read your Bible. Enjoy your Bible. Take note of all of those one another's and practice them. Because it's in that mutuality, that one another, that giving and exchanging, that the grace of God, which produces growth, comes to us. Practice the one another's. Let us be a community committed to that. And number two, as a strategy, practice the means of grace with the church family. What do I mean by means of grace? That's just historic Christian language to refer to uh, reading and studying the Word of God, hearing it preached and listening to it together, to prayer, to the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it refers to the fellowship of God's people, evangelism. All those things we think of as part of the Christian life, 
right? Do that in Christian community. And as we do that in Christian community, especially when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel connected, when we do that connected with the Christian community, well, that's how the sap from the vine flows into your branch. That's how the nourishment from the joints and the ligaments reach your part of the body. Disconnect yourself from that, there is no chance of those things coming to you. Connect yourself to it, even though it takes some time to get sort of sewn back into the body and useful as a limb again, sooner or later all of that life, which is life from God, will course through your soul. So, Let's remain connected to the head and remain connected to the body. Let's practice those one another's as a church family and let's practice the means of grace together and let's stand back and marvel at how God grows us with a growth that comes from Him. Let no one take you captive. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. Enjoy the fullness you have in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we long to be free with true freedom, which means freedom that is defined by you, freedom that's defined by your word, freedom that's used in agreement with your word. For freedom, Christ has set us free, and we wish to learn how to stand firm and not let ourselves be entangled again by a yoke of slavery. We wish, O Lord, to learn how to humbly walk with Christ and enjoy the, the wide open fields that he has set us in and to learn, Lord, not to judge your servants, not to disqualify your servants, not to even judge ourselves, as Paul says in one place. For you will judge us and you will make us stand. And so help us, O Lord, we pray, to stand in your freedom to enjoy our union with you, to live out this reality to the full that our souls might be satisfied and that you might be glorified. Do this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.